Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures in Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, towards the end of the chapter, it's recorded in our text, verses 45 to 50, is the text for our study this morning in Matthew 27, verse 45. So we have traced with Matthew the panoramic view of all of those who surrounded Jesus in the moments of his horrific suffering. From governors to soldiers to religious leaders to a man called Simon, it's as if the camera has swept around the Via Della Rosa, giving us a picture of the ravenous dogs that Psalm 22 alludes to, that barked and bit at Christ in those fateful moments. We have seen the expression on their faces. We've heard the heckling tone of their voices. And we have watched as they made irreverent gestures towards our Lord. Now in this part, beginning in verse 45, In this part of Matthew's account, the camera stops and it fixes itself upon our Christ. Do you see him there like Matthew shows? Behold the Lamb. Reading in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lemma, Sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Thus says the word. And like a great author, the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, writes about an agony of the cross that cannot be understood or explained. There is a mystery now in the suffering of Christ. The lashings, thorns, nails, wood, all of them could be understood and explained. But now the Spirit, Now the Spirit will show us a mystery that will let us see something that we don't deserve to see and that we fully, we can't fully comprehend. One of the songs this morning we sang that we could not look upon the glories of Christ in the hour of His humiliation, so God shrouded His glory. This is the text that the author of that song alludes to. Even in the writing of the shrouding of the glory of Christ and His humiliation here on the cross, you and I do not deserve to read verses 45 to 50 in our Bibles. 
We are not worthy. But in this moment, there is a transaction that is taking place that is so vital to our salvation. And it is the joy of the Spirit to teach us something about our redemption that we should never forget. And that should so ground us in the full assurance of our salvation that we should never doubt the effectual power of the Almighty God in making us His sons and daughters. It is in the abandonment of Christ that we begin to understand the permanent work of adoption that God grants to those who will believe upon Christ. Would you join with me in prayer as we launch into this passage, seeking the Spirit's work in our hearts together? What was in darkness for three hours, Spirit of God, we ask, that notwithstanding the will of God to leave those things that ought to be mysteries forever, would you reveal to us the purpose for your recording of this passage of this instance in our Bibles. Spirit of God, be faithful to deliver us a view of Christ that could not be seen because of the shroud of darkness by your special illumination of our hearts this morning through the living word of God. We bow before you, Spirit of God, and we ask that you would teach us all things of Christ. We ask that you would remove the blinders from our eyes, the blind spots from our sight, that we could look into the very word of God and looking into the perfect law of liberty be changed from glory unto glory. And Father, as it is our desire in this passage to see your work, may what we see here as the abandonment of Christ for our adoption, may it just come with rushing joy and exhilaration and assurance unto every heart here this morning, but especially the hearts that are prone to doubt and wonder of your everlasting steadfast love. Father, preach to us the fullness of salvation this morning granted to us through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. It is this abandonment of Jesus Christ that is it is especially understood as a word that we'd like to introduce this morning in our study called judicial abandonment. What is judicial abandonment? Judicial abandonment is the assignment of judgment upon the accused without any recourse or appeal. It is the final act of judgment that eliminates any possibility of relief from the punishment. It is a sovereign, irreversible order. Judicial abandonment. And this is what the Son of God experienced when His Father, the Holy Judge, looked upon Him and turned aside. Habakkuk 1.13, the faithful prophet Habakkuk says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You see, God cannot look upon sin. He is altogether holy and pure and perfect. He cannot look upon sin, not one instance. And even when He Himself would bear our sin on the cross in the second person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, 
that God the Father looked away from His own Son. This passage ought to stand out to us as a remarkable, incomprehensible truth and reality. And this is what we call judicial abandonment. God always deals with sin rightly. Always. And every sin of every person that's ever lived, will live, is living on, in this world. Every sin will be dealt with judicially rightly. Every sin will be reconciled either in the eternal burning fires of hell or be reconciled by faith unto the grace that has been granted unto those who will believe upon Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, sin is either dealt with by the believing person on the cross of Jesus Christ, or it is dealt with in the unbelieving person throughout all of eternity in the hot fires of hell. But sin is always rightly dealt with by our holy God. Let it be known to you that the most devious and wicked ways of the most evil men and women on this planet will be reckoned in a final day of judgment, not a single sin has escaped the holy, piercing eyes of the perfect one of whom we all have to do as his creatures of mankind. That while God cannot look upon sin, he will deal with sin rightly all of the time, all of it. On this day, let's remember, it is Passover. And in the middle of the day of Passover, lambs would be slain. There would be, there were these um, sacrifices, these Passover sacrifices, were a continuation of centuries of obedience to God's instruction to His people that reached as far back as these people, their bondage uh, in Egypt. So remember what's going on on this day, on this Friday, we call it Good Friday, on this Passover day, is lambs being sacrificed in the temple, as they had been for centuries. And you remember well with me that when God sent Moses to deliver his people from Egypt's grip, the Pharaoh was unwilling to yield them their freedom. One plague, two plagues, three plagues, and four Five and six and seven and eight still would not break the will of the Pharaoh. Cattle lay dead and, and beasts and insects and plagues flooded the land as red as the river Nile. After eight plagues. Instead, Pharaoh hardened his heart despite plague upon plague. And semi-finally, there was a ninth plague. And that was, a, that was horrifying. The ninth plague was horrifying to the people of Egypt. It was horrifying to them because they were superstitious pagans. It was the plague of darkness. The ninth plague that the people of Egypt would succumb to would be the plague of darkness. Moses records it in Exodus 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And still, after this ninth plague, and eight previous ones that were manifested in an epidemic more visible, by the way, and more pervasive than COVID itself, the Pharaoh refused to break his will and to yield. It was as if the darkness of this plague was an illustration of the Pharaoh's blind unbelief. Then let's remember what was the tenth and final plague. It was the death of the firstborn son of every home, including the palace. There would need to be a substitute for every house for the firstborn or he would die. On that fateful night, the angel of the Lord would pass over every house in the land of Egypt and only the homes where the blood was applied to the entryway would be passed over. Passover. Here in Matthew 27, it wasn't three days of darkness like then. But it was three hours of total darkness in the middle of the day. Three hours of the shrouding of God while he viciously and furiously dealt with sin upon his son. So hot was the fury of God, one person has said, so hot was the fury of God that it was black for three hours. There wasn't one ounce of God's wrath for our sins spared when He judged His Son for our sin. We do not know why exactly that God had caused it to be completely dark at the middle of the day, but we can reasonably assume, I believe, that the terror of punishment that was being measured out upon Jesus Christ, no man was worthy to look upon. No one was worthy to look upon the humiliation of the sinless one as he submitted himself to the Father's wrath-filled judgment. And then after the darkness, like after the ninth plague of Egypt, what happened? What was the tenth plague and what was the remedy? The Passover lamb. Then after the darkness, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son. Now on Passover itself, centuries later, later on Passover itself, the tenth plague celebration, on Passover itself we see darkness in judgment, death of the firstborn, and the Passover lamb. Now on Passover itself, then received the sacrifice of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus would be the lamb on Passover, following the darkness, the firstborn son who would die so that God would pass over us in judgment. 
After the darkness, what happens? Notice, after the darkness, what happens? Looking back at our passage here, verse 45. Darkness is over the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, and then the people mock, and then, verse 50, Jesus dies. Jesus dies. After the darkness, Jesus yields his spirit like those thousands of lambs had on that fateful last night on Egypt in Egypt. Jesus was the final Passover lamb. Darkness was seen over and over again in the Old Testament as a sign of God's judgment. Every prophet relates the judgment of God into darkness in some way. Every prophet from from Isaiah to Malachi. For Israel, darkness was a terrifying prospect. It was a terrifying prospect for them to think that darkness would be upon them because it was seen that light was God's blessing, but darkness would bespeak of his judgment, of his disfavor. So too, we can understand that. There's little more terrifying than being in trouble and in darkness at the same time. Have you ever been in trouble and in darkness at the same time? There is no clearer reference to the darkness of God being a sign of the judgment of God than Amos' prophecy of the final day of God's judgment on the day of the Lord. Listen to Amos when he says in Amos 8, 9, and 10, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Who will experience this judgment in Amos? Who will experience that judgment? Amos is speaking of a day yet to come when God deals finally with all sin, with sin on this earth, with the the sin of the wicked. And why are they wicked? Because they have not believed upon the Son. And so God deals with His judgment on this day in darkness, in Amos, on the day to come, the day of the Lord, he deals out, he measures out his darkness and his judgment upon the unrighteous. They are the ones who will succumb to the darkness on the day of the Lord, not the righteous. So when we read here in this passage, in verse number 45, that Jesus is cloaked in darkness on the cross, it makes us wonder, who are the unrighteous who are receiving judgment in darkness. If you think about this from a a theme of darkness and judgment that God has laid out consistently all through Scripture and foretells in time to come, if in darkness there is the judgment and disfavor upon God, then who in this passage is shrouded in darkness? Who is the unrighteous? And we look around and we find out that nobody's suffering except for one. Who is that one? It is God's own Son. He is the one shrouded in darkness. He is the one who is being judged. He is the one who is unrighteous. We see the bystanders and they don't seem to be touched by any form of judgment of God in the present moment. We see the soldiers and and they seem at most a little shaken but certainly seem well after the darkness dissipates. 
But in this passage, who is the unrighteous that is being judged in darkness by God? It is clearly Jesus. He became the unrighteous one. He became the unrighteous. And Paul and Peter and the apostles, they pick up on this as they take this passage and this uh, crosswork of Christ and they explain the transaction that's taking place. And this morning, we read it in the last verse of our public reading of the word in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sin, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. That is, God made Jesus unrighteous so that we could be made righteous. In Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on, is hanged on the tree. Jesus was that cursed one who hung on a tree. He was the unrighteous in this dark hour. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And so Jesus becomes the unrighteous. And directly following the darkness, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. And this is not a cry of hopelessness. It's a cry of faith. And by the way, it is the only time that Jesus addresses the Father as God. It's the only time you'll find in Scripture where Jesus is praying and he doesn't say Father. He says God. Their separation in that moment was not of nature of personhood. You see, Christ did not stop being God Himself on the cross. It was a separation of closeness of fellowship with the Father, who He had enjoyed eternal joy and uninhibited blessing of unity with. It was like, if we want to illustrate it this way, it is like a child who has critically sinned against his father and no longer enjoys his closeness. He still maintains the father-son relationship, but he does not, and he does not cease to continue to be his child. When a child disobeys a father, the relationship is still there, but the closeness is not. So the separation of God from God on the cross was an immeasurable pain and extremely humbling to Christ. It is, by the way, following the darkness that Jesus cries out in this agony. In all the sayings of Christ on the cross, it is the agony of His separation, of His, of his strained relationship with the Father, of His turning away, of the Father's turning away from Him. This is the extreme agony that Jesus suffers. It wasn't the lashings of Pilate and the garrison of soldiers. It wasn't the thorn the, the crown of thorns thrust upon his brow. It wasn't the nails piercing into him and the, the crucifixion that we hear him crying in agony. Finally, ultimately, it is the lack of fellowship with the Father that Jesus cries out in anguish. 
We cannot explain or really begin to comprehend all that was happening in that moment except that it was happening. Martin Luther went away and cloistered himself for a long period of time thinking only on this truth that God separated himself from God and came back after his time of study, of prayer, of meditation with no greater clarity than when he had begun to study and meditate on this truth. It is one of the many mysteries of the cross. Yet in the midst of Christ's abandonment lies all the hope for our adoption. There's some speculation that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22.1. We notice that it is not necessarily a unique phrase to say, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? For example, how often have you cried out this prayer unto God and asked God where he was and you felt that God was not near you? And some say that Christ's cry was that of a cry of faith that was lost. But remember, if you can have the capacity to, that we began this year studying of suffering under the sovereign hand of God in the Psalms. And remember that in our studies earlier in the year that we learned that the one who cries out to God does hope in God. And Psalm 22 is a good example of that. Psalm 22 begins with the passage saying, saying that, uh, that he feels abandoned, that he feels forsaken. David cries out and says, I, I just don't know where you are. I, I don't have any sign that you even are with me or you care for me. I have no recognition of you in this moment. But by the end of the psalm, the psalmist reflects upon God's steadfast love and everlasting mercy. So too Christ was not faithless here in this moment to cry out. But Christ was hoping against hope in his God. And even though the Father had turned away, Christ was entrusting himself, knowing the nature of his Father. And Peter says that in in 1 Peter 1, He said, Jesus entrusted himself unto the one who judges rightly. He entrusted himself unto the one who judges rightly. And Christ in this moment was entrusting himself knowing the nature of his Father. But there are many who were standing around and could not comprehend and were very confused about what was taking place. And as we see, they ascribe unto Elijah, they They say, they allude to Elijah. What is this that has to do with Elijah? Elijah was thought to be a coming prophet for the people. They knew that he had never died, that he was received into glory uh, with a deathless ending of his life or a continuation of his life, better said. That Elijah really was a faithful man. He was a hero for Israel. He was thought to be a miracle worker, turning, turning the widow's barrel of of grain into something overflowing and raising her son from the dead. His name also sounds similar to the Hebrew word for God. And some might have thought and heard it in a gargled tone, perhaps that, that God that Jesus was calling out unto Elijah, not necessarily calling out unto God, why have you forsaken me, but unto Elijah. Elijah had sort of a reputation or he was thought of in a legendary way of being sort of everlasting immortal, if you will. 
And here they even cynically thought that Elijah would be the bringer of life or the deliverer to Jesus on the cross in a mocking tone. Notice in their mocking that the bystanders were so committed to their unbelief. Notice that the darkness for three hours in the middle of the day doesn't even phase them. Be reminded that in this text, it is directly following, it is the ninth hour when Jesus cries out unto God. It is the ninth hour when the sun appears again and they have withstood three hours at noon until three. Of total darkness and so so to the extent that they could not see one another in the middle of the day, all of a sudden, and it doesn't even phase them, the sun shines again and they say, let Elijah save him. One might think that they would have associated this darkness with, as we have referred to with some of the Old Testament themes of the signs of darkness. But their thought on their mind was to make Christ's agony even greater as they heaped upon Him shame and reproach instead of looking upon themselves in remorse and repentance. They had no idea. They had no idea the extent of the suffering of Christ that he was already undergoing and that was not visible. All they could see was the nails. But God doesn't want you and I to be like those bystanders. God doesn't want us to be like these bystanders, confused and without understanding. God wants us to see what Christ has done. And so, lastly, we see that Jesus has done something significant. He commits his spirit. He commits his spirit. In verse number 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew records it that way. John shares with us the words and he says that Jesus said, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. John was there, by the way. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. This committing of the Spirit is a conscious act of God's sovereign will. Is a conscious act. A willing act. He surrendered His Spirit. No one took His Spirit from Him. And the basic meaning of, of, of yielding up His Spirit is the idea of letting go or sending away. It is not a giving up in the sense of surrender it is the idea of delivering into. It is an act of the will. In John 10:18, Jesus said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me. Let me read that again carefully. I lay down my life. Yeah, but what about the nails? What about the strong soldiers who were executing him? What about the religious leaders delivering up to be crucified? What about Pilate who sentenced him to die? Let him be crucified. My hands are washed clean of this. What about all of the people who are, who are conspiring to crucify him? What about their role in delivering up Jesus? But Jesus says in John 10:18, I deliver myself up to die and I will rise again. This is an act of God's will. And the fact is that as we look in verse number 50, of Matthew 27, we hear that Jesus, we read that Jesus cries out with a loud voice. The loudness of Jesus' voice demonstrates 
that he had life left in him before he delivered it. That is to say that Jesus did not take his own life. Jesus did not commit suicide. Jesus willingly delivered his life. He, he, he gave it up. Because listen, there is nobody who could have taken the life of God himself had he not granted it to be so. Nobody could kill God. Jesus' loud cry was an act of power. He died. Like, He died. That was an act. He died. It was voluntary. Jesus has demonstrated that He continues to be sovereign over His suffering and He's sovereign even over His own death. And Jesus' abandonment in this time is for our adoption. Jesus' abandonment in this moment is for our adoption. And that's how we begin to hear about the purpose of Christ's suffering in the New Testament writers. As the New Testament writers look back upon this abandonment of the Father to the Son, Paul and Peter and John, they all really see the abandonment of Christ is for our adoption as part of the cross work of Christ. We don't hear that kind of story when we think about adoption in our society. We don't think of of abandonment of a child as something good, and rightly so. Nowhere do we see an abandoned child uh, be a wonderful story. But as raveled and as twisted as the thorns were on that crown, so raveled together is the blessing and the cursing of the cross for our redemption. Jesus is abandoned so that we could be embraced. Jesus is abandoned so that we could be embraced. If this is the length through which our adoption as sons that God powerfully orchestrates, if this is the length to which God will do to adopt us as sons, then what could possibly undo this adoption? Let me ask you this again. If this is the length to which God accomplished our adoption by abandoning His Son through judicial abandonment on the cross, it was all about His power, the Father's power. It was all about the Son's power. If all of this power is demonstrated through this mysterious and yet wonderful act on the cross, if this is what has accomplished our adoption, let me ask you this. What power can undo that adoption? And the answer is none. This forceful forceful working of redemption is more powerful than sin itself. This power working through the abandonment of Christ breaks the back of sin and cancels out all estrangement for believing sinners. So secure is our adoption in Christ that He won it by His own rejection from the Father in that time. There are many in the Christian faith who hold to an unbiblical belief that one can, quote, fall from grace. The one who has started on the Christian journey by faith can, quote, lose their faith. The one who is saved could, quote, lose their salvation. 
But the cross work of Christ, when carefully studied, abolishes any notion that any of us is more powerful than any work of Jesus Christ. Not doubt, not unbelief, not any sin can undo what Jesus has done. Amen? Preach it to yourself over and over again. Preach it to your accusing conscience and preach it to the evil one who accuses you before the throne of God. There is nothing that you and I can do that can undo what God has powerfully completed. Nothing. There are a lot of references to our adoption unto the Father in the Scriptures. And nearly all of them qualify our adoption by a power worked about by God, not a power worked about by our belief or faith. And there is no clearer passage about the power working for our adoption than found in John's epistle, John's gospel, John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And that word right is translated in multiple ways. It is helpful also to think of it this way. To those who receive him, who believed in his name, he assigned them to become children of God. He ordained them. He adopted them. All of those words can rightly fit into this proclamation. It is a proclamation not made by the sons unto God, but by, the God, by God unto the sons. You are my beloved son. And if Christ's abandonment is real, then our adoption is too. If Christ's abandonment is real, then our adoption is secured in the power of God, not in our power, not in man's power. And there may be many times, or there may be times, like Christ, when heaven seems silent. But after the pattern of Christ here in this passage on the cross, know this. When heaven is silent, and darkness is a shroud over your troubles, God is working about a far more weighty work for your redeeming sanctification than you and I could possibly understand. Just like for the period of three hours when there was darkness shrouding Jesus and the greatest moments of our redemption were taking place as the transaction was between the holy judge and the spotless lamb becoming an unrighteous sinner. And the work of redemption was working about in the mysteries of God shrouded in darkness for our redemption, so too often in the time of our peril and our trouble, in the times of darkness when heaven seems silent and it seems like God has turned his back on us, so too God is working about a far more weighty moment of redeeming sanctification than you and I could imagine. Even though there's silence and darkness. You see, God doesn't cease to be a good father when it's dark.
God doesn't cease to be a good father when it's dark. He doesn't cease to know you. He doesn't cease to love you. Nothing changes of God in the dark. Nothing changes in God in the dark for you and I. Because of that day when it was dark, everything changed for everyone. Let's pray.